Welcome to Black Man White Paper. I'm Ibrahim Badmus. Today's guest is Shane Adigun. She is a Summer Olympian, a Winter Olympian, and also a doctor of chiropractic. She is incredibly accomplished, very determined. I think you'll realize quickly that she sets goals and accomplishes them. We talk a little bit about her past, her present, and her very ambitious future. Uh, hope you guys enjoy it. I certainly enjoy speaking with her. All right, let's go. Hey, yeah. Yo. Shem, my sister, my good friend. <laughs> my What's up? Oh, I'm so glad that you did this and you got to do this. I'm I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you so much. Of course, of course, absolutely. You know, we always got to find time for fam, man. It's, that's just like got the to. code. That's got to, right? No matter, <laughs> no matter what. You know, yo, I got this fish fry Thursday. What you got? What you going to do? You going to be there? I mean, <laughs> we work it out. <laughs> nah, I appreciate you. Um, So I, I don't really, I don't have much, but I really want to kind of, um, I, I just feel like you're such a unique person. And I think a lot of people probably feel that way. And um, if they don't know you, uh, why don't you uh, spend a little time trying to sum summarize who you believe you are, and uh, and then we can kind of go from there. So, like, what exactly do you identify yourself as, and then um, we can take off from there. Uh, yeah, well, interestingly, I've recently coined um, a couple hashtags that I think. I tried to use to summarize uh, myself. And the first one was the first African. Hashtag mm. the first African. And the second one is hashtag Dr. Oli. And they're very unique in the sense that when you hear the first African, I would hope the first thing you think about is like the first African what, right? right. And so um, that was like the whole point. It's like, this is the first African. Well, I, the what is I encompass so many different things. And the origin of that first African is the first African summer and winter Olympian. Mm. So I had the, the blessing and the pleasure of being able to compete for the country of Nigeria in the 2012 Summer Olympics as a 100 meter track and field hurdler. And then mm. in, recently in 2018, I started and was the driver of the first ever African bobsled team which was the Nigerian women's bobsled team. So that sums up the first African. Okay. And then Dr. Oli, and that's D-R-O-L-Y. Oli is actually a newer um, suffix that comes from being an Olympian. Mm -hmm. And so um, it's actually like a legal name that you can a legal suffix you can use on documents which is quite interesting kind of like a md or you know like junior or senior which is quite cool, cool. T -A -D -M -B, um, yeah 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 so yeah. I, I i know when i saw that i thought it started actually as a license plate which I thought was kind of cool. <laughs> <laughs> so i was like man this is actually kind of a cool idea um because i uh, recently completed my fifth degree, which was a doctorate of chiropractic uh, in 2017. Yeah, kind of crazy. 
So I was like, Dr. Oli sounds pretty good, but I am a chiropractor and a biomechanist. So mm. um, along with uh, being an athlete. And so that's why those two hashtags, I think, kind of sum everything up for me. Well, Lord, that's that's quite a resume. <laughs> um, you know, I, I keep thinking to myself, like if someone saw the D-R-O-L-Y, I know some people in our in our country be like, who is D-Roly? Ah, no, like who, you'll who be, even this? my dad, he said, <laughs> Dr. Oli. Who is Oli? <laughs> I'm like, dad. <laughs> like, first of all, <laughs> dad, that's, that's the first three letters yeah. of Olympian, okay? And he was like, okay. <laughs> 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 so um let's start with let's start with the first african um at some point when uh, prior to this there there had to be it, like it didn't like you did you not like stumble upon you know being an olympian or was this something that was always kind of in your head that you wanted to achieve or at least attempt uh, at some point in your life you know i think at a certain point yes but it was a combination of both. I kind of stumbled upon it and eventually it became a part of what I wanted to become. So stumbling upon it was basically all the way up and through college. Um, I did not realize that I would give this Olympic thing a shot until I was graduating senior in college. Um, I had been doing sports basically my entire life but track and field uh considering how many people start in the sport I was a, a late comer and a late bloomer um so I didn't get recruited I was a walk on college until I got on campus then they finally offered me like a partial books and tuition waiver because I was out of state and I went to University of Houston being from Chicago they waived my uh, out-of-state fees but that was really it I um I thought I was gonna be a basketball player um but realistically, being 5'5", five, five when I'm, you know, standing on my regular leg, uh, is <laughs> it just wasn't enough to, to get me looks in a collegiate level as a power forward, which I played all my life. Oh, you played yeah, the four? Yeah, I played the four and the five, oh, wow. which was... Uh, oh, wow. Well, yeah, that's a that's a smart move. Yeah. Switch on. But I, I was I was a gift and a curse because I was blessed with like a 38, 40 inch vertical in high school. <clears throat> yeah, wow. so I was small but mighty. Like I had a lot of power, and I was really fast, and I was really strong. So it just it made for, it worked right because it didn't matter that the girls were you know five or six inches taller than me. In many cases, I could still play with them and dominate them. But in the collegiate level, mm -hmm. they, it just they weren't even looking that direction. So my senior year, I decided to give this track thing a try, um, even though I had been running, you know, and, and the running was really just because I was fast and everybody on the block. And so I was like, oh, OK, cool. Like, I'll run this race. Um, but it wasn't until I got to really a senior year that I decided to do the sport seriously. Um, and so from there, I wasn't recruited, obviously, because I was a late bloomer, but I came in. Um, eventually ranked, I think, number six in the country in my event and becoming like, I don't know, I think the 14th female in Illinois history to break 14 seconds in the 100 hurdles. And so that made my my coaches decide, okay, well, maybe, I mean, this this one's worth the scholarship. We don't have much money because we just recruited the one, two, five, and fourth uh, hurdler in the country in her class. 
So she's coming wow. in number six, but I mean, she's still very impressive. So that's how I ended up at University of Houston. I, I had all kinds of academic scholarships. So I knew that was where I wanted to go. I ended up there. But I had my second heart surgery my senior year in college. So there wow. was no. Yeah. The first was when? The first one was when I was 13, 12 or 13. I was uh, about seventh grade uh, when I had that surgery. And um, I didn't really think much about it. You know, when I had the first one, I was kind of looking at all the adults who were paranoid about the fact that a 12-year-old was having a heart surgery. You know, I was like, gosh, get over it, guys. I'll see you tomorrow. You know, like, I, I was really <laughs> like, man, whatever. You know, like, it's all good. I'm about to play in this basketball game, and it's going to be good. But the second one, it was kind of different, uh, maybe because I was older. I was uh, 22 then, so I had the opportunity to really understand how to value life at that point. And so um, – <laughs> But it wasn't until after I had that surgery that I had the capacity to train in a manner that would then put me in world rankings, like almost immediately. And so it was almost like people turned around and were like, well, I mean, we always knew that Sean was in the mix, but now she's like number one in the NCAA, number 14 in the world like whoa you know like where did she come from and what people didn't know is that I mean I was plagued with heart condition the entire time just being the best that I could be and so that's why I said I kind of stumbled upon it uh, just because by that time I had already applied and gotten into grad school at Tennessee I was moving you know I was leaving I, I was only in the sport at that point because it was my final year and I wanted to finish what I started but I had already quit like three times. I quit my freshman year. I quit my sophomore year. I quit my junior year um, and still wow. always ended up back in the sport. Uh, and I actually quit my sophomore year to try and play basketball um, at the collegiate level. So it was it was one of those things where it was like, wow, now I actually have a shot at being Olympian. And my coach was telling me, he was like, Sean, I think you we've been robbed three years of our of our life together. I think, you know, you should stay here instead of going to grad school. Um, I want to offer you a job here as a coach and, and then I want to continue training you because I, I definitely think you have what it takes to be an Olympian. And so wow. all in, in a matter of a few months, I went from being a student athlete to a coach training for the Olympics and getting my master's at University of Houston. So wow. it was it was a real blessing, wow. but it was it was a crazy road. But that was the road to the 2012 Summer Olympic Games. Um, and it was and it was great. Um, and then eventually, like after those games, I literally threw my spikes on top of the, the, the pole, you know, like the, the telephone pole and was like, all right, cool. August 6, 2012 was the last time I hurdled. And I knew it was going to be the last time I hurdled because I had already made up in my mind that, dude, I'm only doing this sport because I know that I, I have what it takes and I want to prove to myself that I have what it takes, but once I've gotten there and done what I know that I'm capable of doing, then I've done everything I want to do in this sport. I can retire and be happy. But little did I know, three years later, <laughs> I would resurface myself as a uh, <laughs> as a winter athlete. Wow. Um, now, like I, the best way, I, like I see, I hear all that, and I just see I. I think of a few terms like first is searching. You're just kind of searching and trying to find your way because you're so talented in so many different things. You you really, really didn't know which one to hit your wagon to. 
but kind of like serendipitously, you just ended up in track and field. You had a coach who was nice enough to kind of steer you in this, in this direction, telling you, Hey, like I, I'll keep you here uh, by coach, by, you know, giving you the coach title, but then you have to train because I see this in you. Is that kind of what you, how you would summarize it? Do you think it was almost like you were still trying to find your way and uh, you were, it looks like you were trying to pull away, but it, it always kept pulling yeah. you back. Yeah. See, <laughs> that's what I actually relate more to. And I don't necessarily think that I was searching or trying to like find my way in the sport because I was very content. Um, I think I had been through so much emotional um, trauma um, and physical trauma that I was, I was more so trying to fulfill my internal, like, um, like satiate my, my mind into knowing that you've done everything you could and you gave it your best shot, you know? So I wasn't necessarily searching to find anything. I think I was more so, um, just proving to myself that you you're strong enough to do this. Like you're not defeated by your circumstances. And I think God was really just surfacing himself in the people that were around me and telling me like, Hey, I know you think that you're done, or I know you think that you've had enough, or I know you think that you're not necessarily strong enough to do this, but I'm going to throw one person at this time and another person at this time. And, this opportunity at, at another time to show you that, no, I still have plans for you and you, you've got so much more in the tank. And so I think the latter of what you said of me constantly wanting to pull away is really consistent to what I felt like I wanted to do. I constantly wanted to just, just throw in the towel. I was like, I'm exhausted. You know, like I am tired. I don't think people understand how, it, it gets really traumatic. It's almost like showing up to practice every day to get jumped, to go home and do it all over again. Just because my workouts felt horrible. Like I would do wow. the same workout as the next man and they would be, you know, maybe touching their knees or whatever. But I would be afraid to touch the ground. Cause I felt like if I got on that ground and got comfortable, you not getting me up. That's it for me. Like I'm, I might die right there. You know, like it was just emotionally, extremely taxing for like six or seven years because that started in high school um you know kind of coming back after the pediatric surgery it started resurfacing itself probably around like my sophomore year in high school so I was done like I wanted to I was looking for reasons to be like you know what Sean you've done the best you can and you can live your the rest of your life knowing that you don't have to think about shoulda woulda couldas like you did it you're fine but it just people or things just kept pulling me back or opportunities kept coming up like, hey, not really. Like, actually, I got another plan. So, Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So let's um, move forward along along life and then uh, and kind of talk a little bit about that next stage where, you know, you finally uh, achieved what it is that you set out to by, um, you know, becoming a summer Olympian. And now you're kind of, and you said you kind of hung up the cleats and not really sure what next, what's next, but it seems like life is kind of pulling you in another direction now, which is almost, um, I wouldn't say like orthogonal, but it's still somewhat similar. Cause I mean, you're competing, you're training, uh, but it's just in a whole different discipline. Absolutely. I, um, 
I was happy with just being a coach at that time. All I was doing was just collegiate coaching at NCAA. Like I was a assistant coach at University of Houston for both the men's and women's track and field team. It, it was my happy place. I mean, I had been in this same building, same program, same people since I was 18 years old. So I was extremely comfortable um, knowing that I had been in the same building for nine years at that point. And so um, I think when it came to, down to it, I, I've always been, like I said, I went back to school and I, in that moment I became a biomechanist, um, which, which just kind of specializes in biomechanics and even just being a hurdler and a hurdle coach and a sprint coach, a lot of the fundamentals of biomechanics were in my day-to-day operations, just, you know, forces, angles, speeds, um, you know, the, how people push, how people pull, um, those type of things. And so I started to see that in my passion for coaching and for helping people become great, there was something that I was missing. And I felt like it lived in the anatomy. I felt like... Mm. I I could see things in ways or even translate rhythms in my mind based on what I see and figure out incongruencies, but I didn't always know the why, and I wanted to seek more knowledge on it. And so I knew in my fourth season of coaching that, you know what, I think I might need to go back to school. And I kind of sat on it for a little bit because I was like, I really love what I'm doing right now. And I interned with some chiropractor, with the chiropractor. I had all types of different, you know, doctors from physiotherapists to chiropractors to cardiologists to everyone, you know. And so I, I knew that I needed to do more research. And after doing all my research and kind of just narrowing down exactly what it is that I felt like I needed, I determined that I needed to go to school to become a chiropractor um, because I wanted to become an anatomist. And I, and I knew that chiropractors, they... They live, diagnose, and treat based on the anatomy. So um, I saw there was a program that not only had anatomy, but it had a master's of science in uh, fitness and human performance, which again would elevate what I was doing as a biomechanist and now make me even more in tune with like the exercise physiology part of it. And so I was like, those are the tools I need to really help people become great. Cause not only can I look at what they're doing biomechanically, but then I can look at physiologically, what is your anatomical makeup? What are the fundamental elements of your life right now that are contributing to either you getting hurt or not getting hurt? And so that's what made me go back to school to seek that. So I resigned from coaching in my fifth season after my fifth season to go back to school. And it was when I was back in school, it was the first time in my life, my whole life that I was only a student. And I think like I wasn't associated to sports in any capacity, not coaching, not competing. And I think that gave me the opportunity to really sit down and look and think, particularly because I had taken this idea of what it was I wanted to bring to athletes and I had formulated a plan to build an injury prevention and rehabilitation facility that really was geared towards revolutionizing sports medicine in the way that I could see it happening. And so I started thinking about that. I started thinking about, you know what, it might not be a bad idea for me to maybe do a sport, like just get into a sport, be, you know, athletic to some capacity so that I can apply what I'm learning to what I'm actually doing and what I'm feeling. And I knew I was done with track and I was like, well, how cool would it be if I, you know, did another Olympic sport? 
Because for me, I'm all about efficiency. Like, I don't like wasting my time. So if I'm going to do something, most times there's an opportunity to to get multiple things out of it. So it's like, if I'm going to do this sport, let's why not do a sport that I could maybe qualify for an Olympic Games in? You know, like, not just be recreationally tearing myself up and stressing myself out like let, let's let shoot for a goal let's have something to shoot for so yeah. because again I knew I was done with all the summer Olympic sports I started it happened to be in a winter Olympic year and I had a couple friends who had gone from track and field to bobsled and so I was like oh you know I started kind of just following their journey to support them and cheer for them at the 2014 Olympic Games and I was looking at it and I said man something in my soul was like yo Shell, this might be it like you might be able to do this sport and that's how I ended up in bobsled I was like man I'm gonna mess around and try out I sat on it for like six months though before I finally tried out for the the USA bobsled team and um wow yeah it started it started from there and that's when that whole journey started wow so um let's 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 kind of talk a little bit about that and uh, I'm just gonna try to um just recap everything so after coaching you you had done so much you had spent so much time just observing and in that observ in that observation that period of observation you saw so many things and probably patterns that you thought could be corrected um but you really weren't sure how to get to the source of the solution and then through that you discovered um you know biomechanics uh and you know all types of studies that fall under the umbrella of human performance mm-hmm. and injury prevention Yep, And really that's kind of what helped you kind of take off and really under- try to get a better understanding of what all of this actually means, exactly. right? Like, what it, like, how do you train, how does this all translate to science and how can we, you know, through metrics really get to the bottom of why per- performers perform and why some people don't perform. Exactly. And, and so, so then what really interests me is how you almost became your own lab rat. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and um, really just started to like say, all right, well, I'm going to have to use someone, someone to test this stuff on. Why not myself? So you, so you took that little hiatus off of, you know, being an athlete, but in trying to study how to, how to, you know, make athletes perform better. You yourself had to become an athlete again, exactly. which is really interesting. So like, th- this is really where, like, I think the crux of our conversation should be, um, you had this vision, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point when you were coaching and then you had, which you were in a current state that was far from your vision. And what, what a lot of people like yourself who are very accomplished, they do, they set goals, right? right. And goals really are like just trained habits. Really. You're just training yourself to complete habits. And um, one thing I really, really like is how, you know, you, you have a goal in mind and you set up a plan, like right, right away, you set up a plan as to how you're going to achieve it. And in and, and you, your plan was, all right, I'm going to be the lab rat. And then it seems like you almost stumbled upon the winter Olympics thing again, or was that part of like your studies? Like, did you think, becoming a winner Olympian would help you better understand like this whole human performance piece. So it was actually multifold, right? I, um, I stumbled upon the sport, but it was just because I was like, I needed to get into another sport. But what actually ended up happening, my train of thought originally was 
hmm, if I get into the sport of bobsled, then that would give me an opportunity to shoot for a spot on an Olympic, another Olympic team, which would not only allow me to have a seat at the table in some of these discussions that I'm going to be carrying on as a a black woman in a sports world, you know, where this is a, is a very male dominated industry. And it's, it's difficult to even get an invitation to that room. Talkless of now I have a seat at the table just because of my accolades from the summer Olympics and from, you know, just like being an African champion and things like that. However, I don't have the audacity to really be able to open my mouth at this table when I'm sitting with, um, you know, Olympic gold medalists or NFL Super Bowl champions or NBA world champions, you know, like people that have hardware that have a lot more um, athletic accolades than that. What would give me the opportunity again as a black woman to actually open my mouth and be heard? Oh, you're an Olympian? That's cool. But it's only cool for people who aren't Olympians or who don't understand elite level athletics to that capacity, like to the championship capacity. But to people who do understand that and who, you know, I know will benefit from the things that I can see in as a void in sports medicine, that means I need to go ahead and do more. Okay. So your end really wasn't the Olympics. It was having uh, influence in this industry as a woman of color, as a woman in general, um, and someone as, as someone who has is kind of battle tested, has credentials, because not only have they theorized, but they've actually put it into practice. Exactly. Exactly. But it yeah. but it ended up becoming such way bigger than that. So that was just the, the seed that I planted where I was thinking like, OK, well, this will be the genesis of how I'll get all of the ball rolling. But what ended up happening, I wasn't I wasn't prepared for like I didn't realize the magnitude of what it was that I was actually about to get myself into. And so when I first started, I thought about it, I was like, the reason why I even competed for Nigeria in the first place in 2012 was because I told myself, even though I was ranked number one with, with the win with the win legal time, but number two in NCAA um, in coming out of college, and then I was ranked number six in the U.S. I think that year coming out of college, um, and top three go to make the teams, whatever it's a world team or U.S. team, whatever. Um, so I wasn't, it's not like I was at the bottom of the barrel, you know, or not in a space where I could be at least in the final, the final heat to compete for a spot. I just knew that sure. I had spent through all my life in America and as a first generation Nigerian American, and you can contest to this, it's just like first generation is, is a real interesting space to grow up in, you know, like you're raised in a culture that you're born in which is American, mm -hmm. but then you grow up with the culture that you're raised in, like you're, you're raised as a Nigerian. And so, although when you step outside that door, you're an American and you deal with everything that comes with being an American. Once you step back in the house door, you're a Nigerian and you're dealt with and deal with the things that make you a Nigerian. And so I knew that, you know, I spent a lot of time stepped outside the door and putting into contributing to my American self. But what had I really done to contribute to the betterment of the Nigerian that I represent? And so I said to myself, yeah. I was like, you know what, if I ever become a professional athlete, 
I'm going to compete for Nigeria because that's what I'm going to use as my ability to give back to Africa, to give back to Nigeria. So when I started bobsled, when I, when this idea now came about fast forward, there was obviously no Nigerian team. There was no African team. And so being an American, I was very much so entitled to being able to make the U S team because I'm an American. And so I thought about it initially about like, um, you know, what if I started a Nigerian bobsled team? You know, it, it started off kind of as a joke because that's jokes, right? Like, how do you com- like that's jokes? <laughs> like, how do you compete in a winter games for African country? You know what I mean? I was like, well, what if I started it? Like, whatever. And so <laughs> I, I talked about it a little bit and just like, yo, how crazy would it be? You know, that type of conversation, not like on some, yo, this is what I'm going to do. You know, it was more so like, man, like, what if I started bobsledding? Yo, because I competed for Nigeria, what if I did a Nigerian team, you know? And so when I made the U.S. team, it was actually the whim of God. Like, I just so happened to decide one day, because remember I told you I sat on the idea for like six months after I first thought about getting into the sport. And I was like, nah. I mean, I had just started school. I was like, you know what? I have no business trying to get into a sport right now. I'm trying to get through a medical program. This is crazy. So six months later, I decided to just look it up. I was like, well, what about this? I was was thinking about my facility again and what I wanted to do. And I was like, what about this sport again? And I looked up and happened to see that the U.S. team was having a combine tryout in six weeks in Dallas, Texas. And I was like, oh, God. Something in my brain just clicked and my heart was like, shell. This is the only window you have. And it was loud and clear in my brain, from my heart to my brain. And it was like, listen, if you're going to do this, like, I know we were joking at first, but if we're going to do this, this would be the only opportunity to get it done. And it was like, okay, this will be the determinant of if I do this or not. Like, if I make the U.S. team, then, okay, that means that this is what I'm supposed to do. If I don't, then cool. Like, you know, I'm going to figure it out a different way. So I used those six weeks to basically get myself in good enough shape after three years of not being an elite athlete to compete at this combine and make the team. Messed around and made the U.S. team. Like, (laughs) messed around and, like, finished top in the combine and third at the team trials and was became, like, an alternate World World Cup breakman where I competed on – Yeah, I competed at a World Cup Games – as a brakeman like I was just like wow okay so this just happened and then I also learned that the sport of bobsled was way more difficult and way more complex than people give it credit for like people drop their lives to do that just like they drop their lives to do medical school and here I am thinking it's okay to pick up both you know (laughs) I'm clearly outside of my brain at this point um, but what I thought to myself was like, okay, Shion, God, let's have this conversation because I don't know how I got here or why I'm even here. Because at this point now, this was the first time in my life where I really had no I- idea what I was doing. Like, I'm usually a very calculated person, a very, um, I'm very in control, very aware. But there was so many things about this that I couldn't control that I felt like I was truly being an instrument like on this earth. And so I was like, God, um, I do not know what you have me do here, but I'm just going to move with the wind. You know, like I'm just going to ride on faith. 
And man, when I tell you pieces started falling together and all of a sudden I just started learning more and more about the sport and about how it wanted to grow. And then Nigeria was looking for their first class of Winter Olympians um, and they didn't have any people. Um, then, you know, the sport itself was looking to, to grow. There were no women's teams that were represented in the continent, obviously. But then even globally, there were very few um, compared to what they really mm -hmm. wanted to have. Like, I think maybe a max of maybe 25 to 30 countries I think were represented um, if that so for them it was like hey we're coming up on an Olympic year you know it would be great to have more teams and so I started to become very torn between my brain and my heart because my brain is obviously thinking about common sense and my brain is like bro this is definitely not along the lines of what makes sense to do like nothing about this makes sense. Not the fact that you're still in school and you're trying to start a brand new federation for an entire country. No, scratch that. A whole continent because there isn't any other African team that you can like blueprint this off of. You're only in your first year of this sport. So you have no idea really what it takes to do this. You just happen to have the right connections and a little bit of will and a whole lot of God. Like that's all you got. And my brain was like, that's where I'm sitting on a no. And my heart was like, but, but, bruh, like, but, but this is where, where I'm like, I got to do this. Like, I feel like I have to do this. Like something's telling me to do this. And so it took me a while before I finally was like, you know what? I'm about to do it. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to start a Nigerian bobsled team. Whatever happens is just going to have to happen. Wow. That is, uh, that's <laughs> remarkable. So you have it, it seems like you kind of gave yourself like and that and the brain does that right like you you have like this executive part of the brain that'll kind of tell you every logical reason to exactly. not do something because because truthfully like the brain doesn't want you to do hard stuff right. to be real right so like you're, you're thinking about all these things you're like just trying to and you're adding up all of these uh you know uh expressions of doubt and still you find find your way basically, you know, blazing a trail. I, I would call you like a few things that I'm thinking of, like when you said just a little bit of will and, and a whole lot of God, you know, it, it takes a whole lot of God and a, and a lot of will to be the harbinger of anything. And most people who don't really know African sports, um, that's, that is a whole different animal in and of itself. Uh, you're dealing with, I mean, you're dealing with a lot of hierarchy um, unfortunately, a lot of corruption yep. and just really like lack, lack of, um, vision, uh, it, you know, from top to bottom, I'd say, I, but, but, you know, there are a few people who do have that progressive mind view, but man, there's just so many things that are put in place to keep that country, uh, at least on the athletic side, I can't speak politics so much, um, to keep that country from progressing, you know what I mean? Yeah. And, uh, that in and of itself is a, an obstacle. So you had an obstacle, you know, internally and then an external yeah. obstacle with Africa. So um, talk about just how you architect, you know, you kind of constructed all this as an architect and put it all together and, and got yourself to, you know, become this ambassador. So it started off, um, the discussion really started off with me wanting to speak with my coaches on the U.S. team. Because, I mean, at that point, I had kind of um, 
not necessarily drawn back from the idea of starting a Nigerian team, but I'm I'm a very loyal person. And I'm also a very um, realistic person, you know, and and I also like to be very truth, like honest and transparent. And so I didn't want to feel like I was turning my back on a place where I was happy, where I was comfortable, where I enjoyed my teammates. I enjoyed my coaches, you know, like I I was there was nothing wrong with the situation I was in. Um, Obviously, it's a lot more competitive trying to make a team. On, in, on the U.S. team versus any team, but I was I, I it wasn't like I was just the bottom of the barrel. You know what I mean? Like there were realistic odds there. So the first thing I thought of was like, I need to have this conversation with my coaches, so that one just to talk to them is like mentor mentee even like is this a good idea versus like you know so it doesn't look like I'm just like hey I'm gonna jump ship and do something else. Like I wanted them to really understand my intentions, which were that. I wanted to help bring something special to the sport, to the country, to the continent, to the world, and um, create opportunities, not only just for more women out there in sports, but also for this continent who, is, who hasn't had representation in the entire existence of the sport, which started in like the 1920s, 30s. So wow. I was like, okay, I had the discussion in my coaches you know, we're extremely supportive and it's part of their mission, even on the U S team to help grow the sport. And so they were like, it will be ext-. one coach was even kind of chuckling. Cause he's like the realest of the real. And he was like, it's going to be pretty hard to do, but <laughs> he was like, man, in just a year of knowing you, man, if there's anybody out there that can get it done. And he chuckled again, even more. It was like, yo, I think it would be you. Like, it's going to be hard and it's kind of crazy. And he chuckled again and he like, it really tickled him. Cause it was just like, not only was he chuckled at the fact that this was realistically could happen with me, but the fact that how crazy the idea was and how hard it was, given the fact that I only had at that point, probably I would say 19 months, something like that, like a little less wow. than two years. And so from there, I started getting connected to people at the top of the International Bobsled and Skeleton Federation, um, which is the governing mm-hmm. body of the sport altogether globally. And because I already had a connection with the Nigerian Olympic Committee, because I was a, you know, a Nigerian Olympian and I was a, a three-time Nigerian champion. So I also had some connects just from bridges that I kept nice and sturdy from when I left that federation. And so I had the tools to be able to make connections that weren't able to be made in the past. Um, And so I connected those two. It took some months. It took a lot of a, it actually was a lot harder than I thought, not because of the connections, but because there was already a Nigerian Federation that was in place, but it hadn't been recognized by the Nigerian Olympic Committee. And yeah, there was a Nigerian Skeletons Federation that had already been started by another young man interestingly, um, that was trying to do skeleton for Nigeria in the 2014 Olympics. And um, Mm -hmm. that didn't end up working out for him. But because he was successfully able to start a a federation, but that never quite made it to the president for recognition, and it wasn't in compliance with the Nigerian Olympic Committee. And so there was a point in time where I had to spend a lot of energy just trying to navigate those situations because it was like, okay, how do we get this federation to either add us or how do we create a new one? Or, I mean, it was just a lot, but by the end of it, you know, we got through 
And um, finally, the Federation was started. And so then it became, I needed to move from the brakeman seat to the driver's seat because. Hmm. um, Do you want to explain a little bit of the nuance of, um, because like as, as someone who is pretty a a novice Mm -hmm. to the sport, I don't know that terminology and I, and I don't know that everyone does. So can you kind of just briefly explain what, what that means, that nuance? Yeah. So the brakeman is the person that sits in the back and is really sits as like the motor of the sled. They're usually like your big track athletes, the speed, the power that goes behind the sled, which was why I was a brakeman coming in. It's also really a more uh, introductory, like entry level position because your main mm. role is just to push the sled as fast and as hard as you can at the top, jump in after about 30 or 40 meters, 30 or 35 meters, and sit still for the ride until wow. you get to the bottom and cross the finish line, and then you pull the brakes, which is what the term brakeman comes from. Um, so you're the Got one it. that's in charge of starting the sled and then stopping it. Now the driver is the person that sits in the front seat, And they're the one who basically helps to navigate the sled from the top to the bottom safely. So they aid in pushing it for those, you know, but they only push for maybe like 20 meters because they got to jump in the sled first and get settled in into their steering um, while the Mm. while the motor continues to push just a little bit longer, maybe like three or four strides longer, maybe. Um, But for women, there's only two people in a sled. And they're now moving to four men for women, though. But um, traditionally, there's only been two women in the sled. And um, for men, there's up to four. So they can do two man or four man in the sled, which is what people kind of may relate to the movie Cool Runnings, where there are four of them that were in it. Yeah, so men can drive a four man. But women, we only competed in two man at these Olympic Games. So um, I was a driver. And then I had, so, but I was a brakeman at first. So now I had to move positions to now go from the person who just kind of goes for the ride, but is, is really, really important to getting the sled going quickly and pulling the brakes and really taking care of the sled um, off the ice. Now I had to be the person that you relied on to get to the bottom safely. And I'd only been in this sport for a year. Um, Mind you, there are people who come into the sport and they learn as drivers right away. Um, So it's not unusual, but um, it's not the most optimal. Usually you'd like to kind of be in the sport a year, learn a little bit. um, And then if you're going to learn how to drive, just, you know, you you spend a little time learning how to drive and then you start competing. No, 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 no. I had to start a federation, become a driver, find brakemen, which I was really blessed to find two brakemen here in Houston, one of which was one of my former athletes at University of Houston. And the second one was someone who had just moved to the city of Houston. And I asked them would they, you know, take the journey with me and they obliged. And so that was a blessing that I was able to take the journey with them and Man, after getting them on board, it was like, okay, now we actually have a team. Now I need to get the, and we got the federation going. Now I need to learn how to drive efficiency en- efficiently enough to complete five races before the next season completed so that I can qualify for the Olympic Games. Wow. So, yeah, that was how that whole thing ended up. And that's why it was such a big deal for us to even make it to the Olympics. Not necessarily because um, we were 
you know, like, oh, you, you know, you guys got a continental bid, so you were able to get to the Olympics in a much easier way than most countries. But the journey that we had to take to even get to that part was a lot more than hmm. just about any other person would ever have to deal with, obviously, because it was just the first one. It is the first one. Interesting. Wow. Wow. So, um, goodness, it seems like the hardest part, you know, was really just like the, the red tape, you know what I mean? Like creating the Federation. It's like from what I'm listening to, it seems like once that was set, I think a lot of the chips kind of fell in place uh, because, I mean, you're looking for Nigerians in Houston who are athletes. I mean, that are, that can't be that hard. I'm not saying it's difficult, but like it's easy, but um, that's much diff- that's, it's much more difficult to just get something that hasn't ever existed into right. existence and nonetheless, in Africa. So um, I'm not saying like it's, it was super easy to find your, your partners, but uh, it seems as though like the hardest part of that whole process was really just getting a lot of the red tape in order, which you did um, successfully. So then can you, do you want to take us a little bit through your experience uh, just getting getting to the competition piece and really just getting onto the big stage uh, when you're actually, you know, everybody in, you know, the, in the, on the Western hemisphere was watching um, everybody here in Dallas and in Houston and definitely in Chicago uh, was watching. I mean, you were, you really took the country by storm, you know, like you guys were the, the apple of a lot of people's eye and um, really just caught on like fire, like your story and the journey. And uh, really as someone who knew you, I was really happy and proud, proud of you. And uh, really I, I knew, I didn't know this amount of work like went into it, but now that I know that it makes me even more proud because I know how the actual journey it is and how arduous it was. So do you want to kind of take us through like just that the end piece of uh, the, the experience. Yeah. I mean, honestly, I probably was driving for about mm, 14 months um, to try mm. and learn. So I always compare it to having a kid who obviously can get a license because they've completed their driving course, which gives them the, this, you know, the green stamp that you are competent enough to operate a motor vehicle. But those same people, you're not going to throw them in Daytona or in NASCAR, right? Because it's a totally different type of driving. You know, like, yes, you can operate this motor vehicle, but to what efficiency and what capacity? And so that's exactly what it was like learning how to drive a bobsled. Like, first of all, the steering is done with D-rings on a pulley system as opposed to a wheel, So if you want to go right, you pull the right cord. If you want to go left, you pull the left cord. However, the the amount you pull it, how fast you pull it, how much you release it, how quickly you release it, whether you use your fingers, whether you use your fists, like how do you see the, the, the turns coming at 80 or 90 miles an hour? Like those things take time, lots of time. The best teacher in the sport of bobsled, especially for a driver, is time. And so at the Olympic Games, the average amount of time that those drivers had been in the sport was at least four. And here I am, 13 months in a game, trying to be as competitive as I can possibly be, which honestly, 
I was extremely competitive. Um, me, my, me and my brakeman, you know, because obviously it takes two of us to push the sled and get it down. Um, it was one of those things where there, the comparison was crazy because trying to compete at that level with those type of athletes in that environment with all that type of pressure, because now you're not just competing for you. You've become, like you said, yeah. the apple of people's eye and not just in, in the country of Nigeria or the continent of Africa, but also America, because you are everything that you represent. And so absolutely, I, I'm, you know, now I'm now carrying the weight of the world because it's my responsibility to get us down to the bottom of the track. So that was, it was a really, really tough journey. I mean, I had a bunch, I had a few crashes um, where we, where a crash is defined as a time where the runners that go on the bottom, the little blades that are on the bottom of the sled are not on the bottom, they're up. And so, um, oh, wow. they're not facing up like in the sky, but they're, you're on your side. You're basically sliding down on your side as opposed to on your actual runners. That's what's considered a crash. So a crash is not as bad as like it sounds. Um, it definitely yeah, yeah, looks yeah. a lot worse than it usually is like 98% of the time. Um, but yeah, our crashes, I mean, I broke three helmets one, one time, like on one venue within two days, wow. it was just one of those. Yeah. It was like the craziest thing. Um, and there was just a lot of pressure to get these things done and to get them done in a timely manner, because not only am I racing against myself in the competition, but I'm racing against time. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. Wow. So you're racing. Um, do you, you want to kind of talk a little bit about like that moment of elation for you or that moment of, you know, satisfaction when, you know, you're like, like almost anything that's congruent to that moment where you were like uh, in the summer Olympics, where you kind of hung up the, the cleats and you said, I've done it. You know, I'm, I'm good. I've accomplished what I set out to do. I'm, I'm satisfied. I'm at peace. Is there, is there a moment that uh, you can kind of parallel at, in this in this particular situation? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think there was a little bit of pressure release when, when I knew we had completed our fifth race and we're now Olympic eligible. Um, Got it. That was definitely because that was a big thing. It was like, I have to complete these five races before we can even talk about being qualified. And, um, and so having that completed, I think, um, was definitely like a foot off the gas, just a little bit, not a, not a lot because you, you can qualify. That doesn't mean you're going to compete or do well. And I still had to be selected, um, as an Olympic athlete. Um, so once we got selected, it was like, okay, we're, we're, we're in the green, we're going to the games. And I think the biggest release was, um, honestly, my graduation, (laughs) <laughs> because you, you, you have to remember I was also simultaneously completing that dual degree program I was telling you about uh, while yeah. trying to create a federation, learn how to drive and qualify at the same time. So I had patience, I had requirements, I had things that I needed to make sure got done just because um, they're required by law as a licensed practitioner um, to do. And I, You know, again, the beginning part of this was me talking about how passionate I was about this idea of revolutionizing sports medicine. 
So it really, mm-hmm. you know, like this, this athletic part just started taking over, but my passion was yeah. really driven in trying to help people become great. And, and it still was. And so I was determined to make sure I knew all of my information and did everything I needed to do. I was Skyping in um, when I was in wherever I was bobsledding into class, I would fly back weekly just to make sure I would take all 15 exams or whatever I had that week. Uh, just because I told, you know, my teachers and everyone knew that there is no getting behind in a medical program. Like people's lives are in your hands. So you still have to be responsible for everything that um, needs to be taught to you because this could save someone's life later. So, I I mean, I was extremely stressed out um, and not necessarily wearing all the stress, but physically I was losing weight. Like weight was just falling off my body, even though I was eating like six times a day because I had to gain 20 pounds for bobsled. So I'm trying to gain 20 pounds, yet I can't hold on to weight because I've got so much on my plate that the stress is literally shaving the weight off my body. And so I just knew once I graduated, I could also take a little bit of a, of a deep breath out and so I was able to exhale there as well and then the final exhale where where it was like the same as when I threw my spikes I didn't physically throw them up by the way but when I uh, <laughs> when I knew that I had Metaphor. thrown in the spikes was after I finally when we completed our first I mean when, when we completed our second day of racing and and we were completed we didn't crash and it was great and I was so happy I just started yelling I was just yelling that's awesome. That's great. Well, um, now that that's done, uh, I'm sure as someone who has achieved what you've achieved, I'm sure you have another vision of what you want the next, I don't know, two, five, 10 years to look like. Um, do you mind sharing a little bit about what that, what you want it to look like? Um, yeah. So, right. It took probably, it took a year to kind of recalibrate, honestly, because there was just so much going on that I don't know, I didn't necessarily lose focus vision of what it was I was trying to do. But it was just, there were so many things that were pulling me in so many different directions. And so that gave birth to new ideas or new opportunities or new ways. And so it took a it took all of 2018, honestly, to kind of calibrate and get to the point where now I can look up and say, yes, I am a, a chiropractor and a biomechanist that is also an athlete. And at least for the next year until another winter athlete has the opportunity to compete in the summer games and so on and so forth, I will still remain the only person to have done that on the continent. But my vision still resides in helping people. That's the common thread throughout my entire life, starting the Federation or even going back to school. It was because I knew there was a void that of, of how I could help people. Then now starting the Federation, helping the sport, helping the, um, helping the uh, country and the continent. Also being able to help myself accolade wise, be able to help people with this facility, Um, you know, and so that's still a very common thread. And so I've become an ambassador for a lot of the things that I represent, um, whether it's a global ambassador for um, the Special Olympics and helping those individuals and creating, helping to create representation 
for them in different spaces using the tools that I have. So whether that's as a medical practitioner um, and so now advocating on a medical side of, hey, as chiropractors or as just sports medical professionals in general, we need to come together and help create avenues where this population of people have resources to become to be better and to be great. Um, or within that facility that I'm focusing on injury prevention and rehabilitation. And so this is a facility that I plan to build from scratch. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty big project. So it, it's going to take some time to really, um, you know, it, like really materialize itself. Um, but mm-hmm. I'm still working on those elements of just being being everything that I am and and being able to show people how possible it is to um, dream and achieve and and strive towards things that you may not even be able to recognize as stuff that you're capable of doing but then getting them done um, so that's that's really what the future holds I've, I've um, entered into practice a lot more consistently now um, seeing patients and um, seeing uh, the athletes that are elite level athletes from you know NFL to NBA players to even just elite level track athletes and um, even non-elite level athletes just um, like corporate corporate, yeah like corporate elite though you know but the you know you have your your crossfitters or people who just really like having a active lifestyle but also need treatment or need to make sure they're in a space of injury prevention and so taking all of that and um being able to implement that which i have experienced as an athlete into that which i see as a practitioner to be a better Mm. Uh, practitioner towards towards these individuals so yeah 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 that's great well um i I, what i see is someone who's committed their their next you know stage in life to service i I don't think you've ever i think you've always probably been a person of service but you've used the last few years to kind of equip yourself so that you can serve at an elite level for know, elite level athletes, individuals, what have you. Um, So the way I like to conclude this is I'm going to throw like five words at you. Okay. These are terms that you can, however your mind discriminates them, you can say whatever you want in response to them. You can give me a one word answer. You can give me a whole diatribe. It's up to you, but I throw them at you and whatever comes to mind, I just want you to kind of share what you believe those terms to be. All right. Cool. So first term, uh, achievement. Man, conquering that which you don't believe that you can. Hmm. Nice. Um, Second term, peace. Being, having satisfaction for doing exactly what you, your heart desires and for doing it with integrity and with good intentions. Passion. Following your heart. Mm. Fear. The ability to reinvent yourself. Oh, okay. 
And the last term, love. Genuine, genuinely appreciating something, someone, or somewhere to a place of peace. Got it. Got it. Well, Shino, is there anything you like the people who might be listening or will listen to this? Anything you'd like them to know before we get off that we did cover? Uh, no, I think we covered everything. And I'm just blessed to have had the opportunity to share with you and for everyone who's listening. And, you know, and I hope that from this, people can really take one, the ability to conquer the fear of the unknown just because you don't always understand or know what's on the other side of the door doesn't mean that you shouldn't open it and not only just open Mm. it, but walk through it. Um, And then I also hope that this helps people also believe in their own abilities um, because it all starts with just being able to believe in yourself, you know, and, and trusting in not only just yourself, but in your abilities. And I think that, that's something that I really anchored in on, especially the last few years is like, I don't always have all the answers and I do a lot. I spend a lot of time trying to seek answers, but one thing I do have is a lot of faith and not just in God, but in myself, I believe in myself. And I believe that there's no dream or nothing that I think of that's one by accident or that's too, too large for me to accomplish. Yeah, I think uh, my one of my favorite quotes, what you're saying reminds me of it by Rumi. What you are seeking is seeking you. Exactly. Uh, essentially. So, yeah, thank you so much. I will let you go now. But that was that was beautiful. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Ibrahim. I really appreciate you. All right. Take care. Bye. you just heard was made using anchor ever thought about making your own podcast anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started it's a one-stop shop for recording hosting and distributing podcasts best of all it's a hundred percent free sign up now at anchor.fm new that's anchor.fm new to get started